Here's the thing though. Welcome to another episode of our podcast, Here's the Thing Though. My name is Saliha and I'm your host for today. I'm here with my producer slash editor, Mitch Price. Hello. Before we begin, we'd like to acknowledge the Darug and Kuringai people who are the traditional owners of the land that we are recording on today. We'd like to pay our respects to all First Nations people, past, present and future, and acknowledge that we're recording on stolen land and that sovereignty was never ceded. So Mitch, how's it going? How's your week been? Yeah, it's going good. I've been well. How are you? I'm... Okay, slightly dying of allergies at the moment, so my apologies to you guys if you're listening and you can hear me sniffling or my voice just sounds a bit zombie-like. I'm very sorry. I am I am dying. I'm trying my best. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's been all right. Been like, I'm just trying to get back into the workflow. It's kind of hard once you finish holidays and you have to get back into the habit of actually working. It's not fun, not enjoying it, but it is what it is. I feel like it takes me the whole year to get back into the groove. And then, and then, you then the two cycle, off. exactly, it repeats again. <laughs> Um, but yeah, other than that, pretty usual. Uh, we have some exciting stuff coming up next week. I guessed it on a podcast episode. Uh, it's a surprise. I'll tell you about it Ooh. Uh, next week when it's out. It's pretty fun. I'm very keen for you guys to hear it. But yeah, let's get into our follow-up for today. Sweet. Uh, grapes. <laughs> <laughs> Last episode, uh, we discussed news resolutions and a few people talked about their New Year's traditions and somebody mentioned a very vague... Uh, answer about eating 12 grapes, one grape, one wish, which we were very, very confused about. Thank you to the several people on Instagram who explained that to us. It is actually a Spanish New Year's tradition. According to the tradition, it is believed that whoever eats their 12 grapes as the bell's chime, one for each of the 12 chimes, will have a lucky and prosperous year. Uh, so yes, we had no we had no idea that that was a thing. So thank you for explaining it to us, everybody. Thank you. Forgive our ignorance. <laughs> yeah. Uh, to give you a little bit of history, Mitch did some research for us. So it seems formally the tradition became established in 1909. Uh, in December of that year, vine growers popularized this custom to better sell the huge numbers of grapes from an excellent harvest. So while the tradition seemed to date back around 15 years before then, it was uh, popularized during a plentiful harvest. So maybe it was just a, a very successful marketing campaign. Who knows? Yeah, look, uh, it still circled back to capitalism. It was literally still a means of selling shit. So (laughs) I stand by last episode. We also got a few people asking us to talk more about veganism. Uh, We are definitely going to do a veganism episode. So don't worry. I know we were pretty vague about our answers with white veganism last episode. But instead of getting to that now, we'll actually just do like a whole episode on our ideas around like veganism and eating animals and all that stuff. Okay. So stick it out till then. Uh, also, um, this is mostly just a quick kind of recap. It's been a pretty wild week uh, with the storming of the US Capitol and the rise of fascism. It's pretty pretty wild. I do want to do an episode on it maybe in two weeks, but I might check up a thread in the Facebook group for you guys because I actually really want to talk about it. There's been a few interesting interactions with the media and the way nobody is really calling it fascism and the way that like these people literally like killed a cop and they were not, you know killed the way Black Lives Matter protesters are. There's a lot of politics around this. I just wanted to mention it briefly in here to let you guys know that we will talk about it in an actual episode later. So we're not just ignoring the news. I'm sure a lot will have developed in two weeks' time as well. I'm sure it'll be an ongoing event. Exactly. So we're just going to save that topic for the next couple of weeks, let it develop a bit more, and then we'll have a really good episode for you guys And send us your thoughts as well. Yeah, I'll check up a Facebook thread. 
All right, so let's get into today's episode. Today we are going to talk about something we've been asked to comment on quite a few times and have been wanting to discuss for ages now, and that is the cultural appropriation and gentrification of food. (laughs) Not the sexiest title, but I am very, very passionate about this topic, as some of you may know with my constant rants about turmeric lattes. Um, But basically, we're going to be talking about, I guess, the way that like white people have colonized ethnic dishes, the Eurocentrism of like cooking, you know, like whitewashing food, colonizing food, gentrifying poor people's food and turning it into a wellness fad, etc, etc. We're going to talk a lot about cultural appropriation and then get into the way capitalism kind of upholds this whole thing. So, yeah, let's get into it. So I was scrolling down TikTok as usual the other day and I came across this TikTok that just first made me laugh a lot and then made me reevaluate my entire relationship with like Western culture and white food. We're going to play it right now so you can hear it and then we'll get into today's topic. So tell me why you deserve to get your brown card revoked without telling me why you deserve to get your brown card revoked. I'll start. Today I paid money to a white guy, $4 for a chai tea latte. I paid money to a colonizer for tea tea milk brown people zero colonizers one this is a mood this is such a mood for me i mean look you guys know how i feel about i guess like white people colonizing indian and southeast asian everything from my internalized racism episode but it's so true how many times like we pay white people to colonize our shit and I guess that's kind of ha- that's how I'm going to introduce our topic today with like culture preparation related to food specifically, because I kind of want to discuss like we already know what culture preparation is. I imagine most of you do. But when we think of culture preparation, we think of things like braids and clothing, um, mostly, I think, just the way like we can physically wear a culture like, oh, that person is wearing an African braid and they're white, etc. That's kind of the basic ways that we think of culture preparation. But I kind of want to expand it into food because it's more more than just that. It's also just the use of your culture by people not from that culture. And that can relate to any part of your culture. And specifically the profiting of it, I think, is a huge part of it and the disrespect and exploitation that can come with culture appropriation. Food politics are becoming more and more talked about as we are expanding our political palette, pun intended. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, There is, I feel like lately, scandal after scandal regarding like either a white-owned kind of ethnic restaurant or like a white chef telling like another chef who was ethnic how to make their own food. I actually have like, just from a quick Google, just like literally like a five-second Google finding like food scandals. And already I have three about Chinese restaurants and all of those restaurants start with lucky something and all of them are owned by white people. (laughs) Let me go through the examples with you guys to kind of talk about what I mean because it's actually really annoying me. So Lucky Lee's, a lot of you have probably heard of this story because it actually was really big in the news. Uh, Lucky Lee's is a Chinese quote-unquote restaurant opened by a white American couple who marketed themselves as serving clean quote-unquote Chinese food using healthy ingredients that wouldn't make people feel, again, quote-unquote, bloated and icky the next day. They actually told... um, the Eater website, that there are very few American Chinese places as mindful about the quality of ingredients as they are. 
Uh, so their whole like their whole shtick, like their whole advertising appeal for their new Chinese restaurant was how it's not like other Chinese restaurants because this one is clean, it's healthy, it's not going to make you feel gross, it's not icky. They don't just like use random dirty ingredients that Chinese people touch. You know, <laughs> it's like this is us and our clean, white, healthy like lifestyle. Uh, it was absolutely fucking roasted. This this restaurant naturally, uh, especially by the Chinese American community. And the owners kind of came out and did a tearful apology of like, we just want to appreciate the Chinese culture. Like, you know, we just want to make it as accessible to as many people as possible by expanding like the dietary requirements, blah, 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 blah. You know, kind of making it seem like they're just improving on Chinese food. They're just like, oh, we're just making this a bit better for a specific group of people who like to eat healthy as if, you know, Chinese food just can't be healthy. Um that was a big one, but there are actually a couple other ones I want to talk about as well. Okay, so there's a US chef called Andrew Zimmerman. He has a restaurant called The Lucky Cricket. I know, it's also called The Lucky Something. I don't know what the fuck this trend is with white people and naming their restaurants Lucky whatever. Uh, and he literally said that his restaurant would save people from having to eat at the low standard restaurants, quote unquote, masquerading as Chinese food in the Midwest. Like he literally referred to like actual Chinese run like restaurants and establishments as like low standard and as not real and not authentic. Uh, And then he was criticized for being racist towards Chinese immigrant families and small businesses. But I feel like it's so much more than that because it's not just the fact that he's racist. It's the fact that like he actually felt comfortable and believed in the fact that his restaurant is more authentic and better than Chinese restaurants as like a man from like just a white guy from the US. And then there was Lucky Cat Gordon Ramsay's restaurant, who I fucking beef with Gordon Ramsay. Oh, I will, Gordon Ramsay. I will fight Gordon Ramsay in the street if I ever see him. Uh, but Gordon Ramsay's restaurant calls itself like an authentic Asian cuisine when literally none of its chefs are Asian. Um, as far as I'm aware, from the time I was reading the articles, all of their staff are white. Um, but there's this kind of common denominator with a lot of these restaurants. And these are just Chinese, like Chinese examples of restaurants, but there are so many others, uh, where white people think they can cook cultural food better than the people who are from that culture. Gordon Ramsay actually has a TV show where he travels around the world, like pitting himself against local ethnic chefs to see who can make their cultural dish better. As if like he even has the authority in that situation to show up and like challenge, you know, a chef of whatever ethnicity be like, I can make your biryani, but better. Who is this man? This is some colonizer logic, okay, which I feel like is pretty self-explanatory. I don't think I'm saying anything particularly radical by saying that. But I kind of want to kind of get into this conversation of like who has authority over food and what makes good food. Like who gets to choose what is good and what is bad food. This is how we're going to get into it. I feel like we're going to go in a lot of different directions this episode. My apologies if it's a bit messy, but we're going to start here. Uh, recently. And the truth may be hard to swallow. Was that also a pun? Yeah. Okay, we'll move on. (laughs) Um, Okay. Speaking of restaurants and Gordon Ramsay and chefs, uh, there's also been a few MasterChef scandals that I kind of want to bring into the conversation as well before we really get into it. So the UK MasterChef a couple of years ago was criticized for eliminating a Malaysian contestant for apparently not making a Malaysian dish correctly. She's literally Malaysian, by the way. Uh, And the chefs that told her that she had made the dish incorrectly were white uh, and Malay- and she was like she was eliminated on that basis and Malaysian viewers went 
fucking like wild and were like totally roasting the judges because she actually did make it correctly and the judges just didn't know what they were talking about. So basically what happened is she was making Nazi Lemek and as part of it, she was making chicken rendang and they complained that the skin wasn't crispy for the chicken that she made because she had made it soft and they like, that was... I guess where she failed when in actuality um, you cu- you cook chicken rendang for like a really long time. And that's why it's soft. Uh, there was like this Facebook user, uh, Sujita Surian, who I love what she said. And I just want to share it. <laughs> the audacity. She was like, crispy chicken rendang. Did the judges think that this was fish and chips? <laughs> Calling themselves celebrity chefs when they only know about food from their own culture. Such limited knowledge of cuisine from around the world. Shame on them, really. Uh, other Malaysian people criticized... Uh, this situation as well, including a Malaysian food journal called Jahaba Sadiq, who said that uh, chicken rendang, like calling that crispy is actually just fucking ignorant. Like it's actually just ignorant. Anybody who knows anything about Malaysian food will understand that it's stuffed as a result of cooking it for several hours, et cetera, et cetera. They're this huge issue. But like these chefs were considered an authority. They like literally run a cooking TV show. They have the power to like eliminate this person on the basis of not making her own national dish well enough she stood by what she said there's like an instagram post uh on her like instagram page which she's like you know what i did it correctly like if they want to eliminate for me for that they can um and then even like just here in australia in the most recent season of master chef we also saw white chef judge jock zonfilo tell a contestant that asian food doesn't lend itself to fine dining uh, and then his co-white chef judge charlie carrington added that the french influence on vietnam French influence, I'm going to say what it is, colonization, uh, would be helpful at making it more palatable to fine dining. What the fuck? He, he, he said that. <laughs> um, it, okay, you know what? It's worth mentioning here that this, this is the same dude who in the final nine elimination challenge, like he was supposed to be guiding ethnic contestants to make either like Chinese, Indian, Mexican or Lebanese street food. This white man was telling ethnic people how to make their own street food. So the audacity is already there for you. At least they're somewhat recognizing that the idea of fine dining is just bourgeois nonsense. Yeah, exactly. That fine dining is like a white supremacist idea. (laughs) Yeah, literally. Even if they're not aware of that. But yeah, it's like there was a huge uproar because first of all, to say that Vietnamese cuisine can't be fine dining is like both classist and racist in many capacity. And then to say, oh, but the French influencers. Like, the oh, str- French influence. Influence. Oh bitch, God. it's colonizing to be like, oh, but it's okay. Cause like just use the colonize. Like, you know how like, remember when like French people like colonized and invaded your country? Like, but think about their dining influence. Use that. And then maybe it can be fine dining. Absolutely shocking. Um, but both of these things like didn't really make huge ripples like they should have. Like there were a lot of, there was a lot of outrage on Twitter by and large by Asian people and by ethnic people. But these aren't things that really made huge news headlines. Like I was only aware of all this stuff because I'm like on Twitter and I follow a lot of the people that were talking about it. And it's pretty to me wild that we kind of just let this stuff go. Like, we're so used... I mean, go- people fucking love Gordon Ramsay. I bet a bunch of our listeners love Gordon Ramsay, just, like, because everybody loves him. Everybody loves Gordon Ramsay. He's such a meme, and I hate him because he is peak colonizer when it comes to cooking. But it's just that we just let it go because, oh, but they're chefs. Like, they went to culinary school. Like, they know what they're talking about, which is ridiculous because, you know what? My grandma, she's Pakistani, amazing cook, never went to culinary school, obviously. It's just within the culture. As you could probably outcook Gordon Ramsay. But, like, you know, it's just, like, 
it's already classist and racist anyway, just like the prestige that comes with these industries. But I guess my issue here is I want to talk about culture appropriation. I want to talk about how like white chefs can come in here and take our dishes, tell us we're making them wrong, quote unquote, improve them and then kind of live their lives and why that's infuriating and why that's hurtful. Because I think a lot of people don't really get it. And it's just like, oh, but they're chefs. Like, you know, they're just doing their job. Um, this is all just normal. Isn't food meant to be shared? You know, where are the rules? Where do we draw the line? And while those are all actually quite valid things to ask or say, they are naive in a lot of ways and they kind of lack a lot of nuance. This shit is hurtful for a number of reasons, but um, I think there's this BBC article that summed it up really well, so I'm going to read it to you. It quotes Luke Tsai, who is a food writer in the San Francisco Bay Area. But basically, the article says that for many people, particularly those from ethnic minority backgrounds, Food can be both personal and political. Second and third generation immigrants often have a sense of loss of their own culture. Their attire is Western, their language is Western, and food is almost the last of the culture domain that they retain a vivid memory of. I really vibed with that section. That is something that um, a sociologist said uh, to the BBC. I really vibe with that because it's true. That's definitely my experience as like a first generation Australian, um, or I guess a second generation immigrant, is... Like that's, that is so true because I, again, like speak English. I'm not even really bilingual and my whole family speaks Urdu. I'm not bilingual. I wear Western clothing. I rarely ever kind of have Pakistani elements in my life from even at home, like just in general, like my mom speaks to me in English. I don't even watch any Pakistani dramas. I feel a real disconnect to my culture that comes and that has come with, you know, growing up in a Western kind of white supremacist colonizer country. You know what the one thing I do have though is food. Like, my grandma and I, that was a huge part of how we bonded growing up because we obviously had really differing views, me being a first-generation, like, Aussie kid and her being, like, a very patriotic Pakistani person. Um, We had a lot of differing views, and maybe that made it hard for us to bond. But the one thing we had in common was a love of Pakistani food. So that's how she showed her love. She used to send over, especially when I'm vegetarian, she would send over, like, all these vegetarian Pakistani dishes for me. She was, like, if, if I mentioned even remotely that I liked something... Every time I came over for the next three weeks, I was getting that Pakistani dish. Like that was her way of showing love. And that is a way that we retain our culture. That's a way I retain my culture. It's kind of why I have so much beef with turmeric lattes. Because as I've mentioned before, I'm sure you guys remember, I really hate them because it's just this gentrifying of like a peasant food. Turmeric lattes are like fucking eight bucks at the local hipster cafe. But at home going up, it's called haldi dud, which literally translates to turmeric milk. That's just translation. And it's something a lot of Southeast Asian people have when they're feeling sick. It's like a, it's like something your grandma makes for you when you're sick. It's just like a thing that a lot of people would have because medicine is scarce and unavailable and it's like a home remedy for a lot of illnesses. It is like a low-class, almost peasant-like thing. You know, it's not a prestigious or fancy superfood or anything like that. It's just something we all have as Southeast Asians in our culture when we feel sick. And it's something my grandma would make for me when I was sick and I have this emotional connection to it, Right. And then to like go and see, by the way, after all these white people have been racist to Southeast Asians for smelling like turmeric, for using turmeric, all the curry related obscenities that you can think of, to then turn around and like, oh my God, check out this golden latte, like this new superfood. It's so healthy. It's so good for you. It'll clear skin, blah, 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 blah. It's fucking offensive because it's like, this is the one thing I have left of a culture that like Western countries have destroyed. Um, and it means something to me and to watch it be gentrified and shit on like that is upsetting, right? So I feel like that quote kind of really understood that and it keeps going uh, when it quotes 
uh, Luke Tsai, who talks about how he grew up in the U.S. with a sort of in-between status of his identity. Was he American or Chinese? It was hard to find acceptance in a lot of mainstream culture. But then he says, For many of us, as we got older, we remembered the food our parents cooked us, and it became a great source of nostalgia for us. In a way, embracing that was embracing the Asian immigrant side of our family. Which is the same thing for me. Like, I struggled a lot with Pakistani identity, as you guys would have known if you've listened to our internalized racism episode. But one thing I never really doubted was, like, Pakistani food. And that is kind of what dragged me back into Pakistani culture. And that's what I hold on to today. Exactly. Like, every single dish has an immense bit of history within it. Like, it's a a tradition that has been uh, reenacted for centuries by your ancestors. And it also reflects the bioregion that, you know, uh, your ancestors are from and your your family because, you know, the food you make is dependent on the food you have around you, which is something that I, we've sort of lost a little bit as you can get every single ingredient uh, within a few kilometers at a supermarket. Exactly. And that's kind of the thing with turmeric lattes, right? Like turmeric was what was accessible to a lot of people in Southeast Asia, especially from like poorer villages. That was kind of this amazing thing that was accessible to us that we could use for all these other mal- like maladies that we didn't have the medication for. It is something that was just part of the culture. As long with, like, along with all the other things that I eat, even just like the way that I make dal is literally just the way my mom makes dal, which is the way my grandma made, like taught her to make dal. And it's probably very different to the way somebody from a different city in Pakistan makes dal. But it's like, it is actually reflective of my family and my culture and the sharing involved between each other. And while I don't have an issue with people sharing recipes, it is relevant when we talk about how personal food is and why it can hurt so much when you watch somebody fuck with your cultural food, right? Especially because when people fuck with the food, the food becomes a very impersonal thing. You know, the context of every ingredient or every tradition has been stripped completely and it's just food as a commodity. Exactly. And that's what happens a lot with like white chefs who commodify, for example, in the, in the example earlier, Chinese food, they go and start their new restaurants where they tell you that their Chinese food is better. It's quote unquote cleaner. It's whatever. But really, they've just like commodified your culture and profited off it by selling a product. Um, it's, there's, there's no actual understanding of the culture. There's no love for it. So it looks like continues to talk about, you know, his experiences and he's like, Uh, how he was made to feel ashamed of his food and culture growing up. It was deemed gross. It was smelly, which I think a lot of us ethnic people can relate to. You know, to have that one thing you have left of your culture ridiculed and degraded for you as a child, only for these people to turn around and act like they discovered your food and then made it better, it's bullshit. And you know what? For me, for me as somebody from like Southeast Asian area, like Indian area, the fucking audacity for white people to act like they discovered something that their ancestors literally invaded and destroyed my country for is astounding. Like when white people start talking about turmeric as if their ancestors didn't come and invade India and destroy its economy and throw it into poverty for turmeric. Yeah, you better fucking like turmeric. Yeah, the fuck? (laughs) (laughs) Like, exactly. First of all, the audacity for white people to just not use the spices that they colonized us for. And then they do use it and they pretend that they came up with it. Excuse me. (laughs) Like, if you're going to colonize us, pillage our nation, like at least fucking talk about where you got this shit from right at least acknowledge the history of how you have come across this which is i guess what we're going to get into later on this episode when we talk about how you can actually share and cook and appreciate the culture of food without being a culture appropriating dickhead and without being a racist right because it's very very easy to cross the line into culture theft and like just perpetuate colonization of a culture All this bullshit uh, that we're talking about with white chefs being like this authority on Asian food after like literally ridiculing it their whole lives is a broader example of cultural and food appropriation as a form of ongoing colonialism. 
uh, in my opinion. <laughs> this idea that white people have the right to steal or change or adjust or reimagine ethnic food and it's just wholly accepted as an improvement rather than like a bastardization because of their authority that comes from whiteness is racist. I mean, think about it. Apparently, ethnic people are not the authority on our own food. All our food is kind of gross. It's unhealthy. It'll make you bloated. It's deep fried. And just on a, on a side note for that, let's let's also remember the fact that all this stuff about Chinese food being deep fried and unhealthy, that is literally a product of like being American. Like Chinese restaurants came to America and had to adapt to the American cuisine of deep fried shit. And when they did, in order to better assimilate, white people turned around and called them dirty and unhealthy. So it just that in itself is an example of colonization. But anyway, um, we're not trusted with our own food. We're ridiculed for it. We're told that we don't make it right. But then a white person comes along and they cook it and it's good. Right. There is like a very racialized element of this, uh, especially when you like think about the fact that there are other races involved, too. And it's really important to remember the whiteness in the situation, because there are also other racial stereotypes that come with whatever culture like non-white chefs are from. Uh, Think about it. Like when a black chef comes up with their own take on a dish, it's seen as, quote unquote, ghettoizing. This is something I saw online. Uh of that dish it's seen as tacky i was reading an article about a black chef that was supposed to get his own tv show and then he was told that people wouldn't believe a black chef doing fine dining like there is a racial stereotype that comes with being black in the cooking field everything that he does he does is seen as lesser but then a white person comes in and they have a take on a recipe and it's healthy it's modern it's fusion the word fusion even if you think about i mean we live in sydney there are so many asian fine dining restaurants in sydney but almost all of them are fusion and there is a reason for that. It's because Asian cuisines a lot by themselves just don't, they're just not seen as prestigious. They're just, they're just seen as like cheap. Asian food is just cheap, which is not true at all. But it's just because of racism and colonialism. And so in order to see Asian cuisine as something special and beautiful and complex and layered, it has to be fusion. It has to have some like fucking colonizers in it, right? And it's fine for people to like fusion stuff and it's fine to even create fusion stuff, but we can't ignore like the racial kind of elements of that. The Eurocentric and whitewashed nature of food culture here in the West is kind of why we see all these white chefs able to come here, hate on our food, steal it, claim it as their own and then get rich off it. All the while the rest of us are out here getting bullied for our smelly and gross biryani or whatever it is that we're eating. I feel like the story of Sean Beagley veers us into a discussion on who owns, profits from, and takes the credit of food cultures. So I want to talk about him. In particular, he's a white chef uh, in Britain. He worked at a Thai restaurant called Somsa. This man was seen as an authority in Thai cooking, and that was his specialty. He studied Thai cooking for years, like in Thailand, from Thai people. Um, and he was considered like a respectable Thai cuisine chef, right? Uh, He was actually exposed not that long ago for having really fucked up and gross fascist politics, like the 4chan kind of shit that you see. Uh, There was a lot, but the relevant parts here are the fact that he was a raging racist against Asian people. He had a YouTube cooking video series where he used a fake Asian accent to mock Asian people while teaching his audience how to cook Thai food. This man made his career off making Thai food. He made a living off the culture and knowledge of Thai people while simultaneously degrading and abusing them. That was his life. Like, this is what he made his living off. That's what this is what, what this known for. It's like learning from Thai people only to turn around and mock them and degrade them and then claim to do their shit better despite the fact that they're the ones who taught him how to cook Thai food. 
And I feel like his story veers us into a discussion on who owns and profits from and takes credit for food cultures because this man thinks he can take credit for Thai food while also degrading them. And obviously, that is fucked. And I think it pushes us into a conversation of not just ownership, but gentrification. Because uh, like I say, with turmeric lattes constantly, the way they've been gentrified into expensive hipster drink and like white wellness trends when they're actually just a household remedy is peak gentrification of food. Uh, and there are so many other ways that this happens as well. It's like quinoa. Basically gentrified it because they made it really popular as like this quote-unquote superfood uh, because of its high nutritional values. Because they were so into it and they made it huge, like they kind of made it like a big import into America um, and like Canada and kind of like the white countries, uh, it actually became gentrified because that made the prices soar. It started to become a commodity, like it started to become an expensive wellness superfood. And that meant that the people who actually live off it, the local Andean and uh, sorry, the local Andean people in Bolivia and Peru, couldn't afford it anymore. And like, I hate that it's called superfood because that is a term I don't like. It's used in contexts where like white people talk about these amazing exotic superfoods. It's not a superfood. Like, the nutritional value that it has is for peasant foods. It's the same way that white people love lentils, and it's like lentils are what poor people in Pakistan eat because they can't afford meat. Right? It's like it is high in nutrition, which means that poor people can get eat a little bit of it and get a lot out of it, right? It's not like this health fad for rich white people. It is for peasants. And to take that term and call it superfood really romanticizes the idea of gentrification, in my opinion. So I really, really, really don't like that whitewashed and glorified way of referring to a food for poor and disadvantaged people. But yeah, like this happens all the time, like with turmeric or quinoa or kale or whatever there's something that becomes really popular it becomes really pricey and expensive because it's quote-unquote exotic and the people who actually live off it can't eat it anymore and they can't afford it anymore and what are they meant to do and this is like this is some white shit like white people in america tried to actually trademark the term aloha and aloha pokey uh, when they started a Hawaiian-themed restaurant, going as far as telling other Hawaiian restaurants to stop using the word aloha in their menus. Like, imagine the audacity to trademark a word in a language that you don't speak uh, because, you know, business. Like, this is capitalism. All of this is very closely tied to capitalism, all of it. The way that we can trademark languages based on, like, ethnic food, or we can even trademark ethnic food, the way that we can start and open restaurants and chains of an ethnic food that has nothing and then know nothing about it, the way we can allow, I guess, whiteness to profit off of the racism that uh, allows ethnic foods to not be taken seriously in the first place and then they're open to picking for colonizing. Like, all of it is so closely interlinked. And I think trademarks are a really easy way to see that with Aloha and patents as well. I was doing some research, and in 1995, the University of Mississippi Medical Center actually tried to patent turmeric believe it or not, uh, for its health benefits. Like, these people... 1995, like, that was not that long ago. I was born in 1998. Like, pretty recently, they tried to patent turmeric as something they had discovered because of its health benefit. And then, like, scientists in India were just like, excuse me? Like, what the actual fuck? Obviously, Indians and Southeast Asians have been using turmeric for thousands, literally thousands of years. Um, and they were able to get the patent withdrawn because they were like proving the fact that actually we've been using this for so long and this university in America is just trying to mine our culture and steal it and patent it as if they discovered it when we've been using it forever and it's not patented in India because it is a cultural thing. You can't patent this thing that we've been used for mille- that we've been using for millennia for like everything, right? This is and that is just so fucking capitalist. 
Like, trust couples them to, like, somehow allow potentially the, the patenting of turmeric, of a spice that millions of people use that, and they have been using for thousands of years. Yeah, it gets really interesting and then extremely worrying when we want to talk about f- the politics of food and how it fits into the logic of capitalism. Because like we said before, food is the one truly universal thing. Everybody needs food to survive. Food is necessary for everyone and food is about sharing. But the logic of capitalism is about ownership and restricting people's access to things. So we have to start to ask who really owns these foods or these traditions or what does that even mean? In doing research for this episode, uh, I went down the strange and unexpected rabbit hole of uh, intellectual property discourse and this term that has been circling around for the past couple of decades called biopiracy. Uh, the definition by uh, a scholar, Graham Dutfield, uh, defines uh, biopiracy as, well, firstly, the theft, misappropriation, or unfair free riding on genetic resources and or traditional knowledge through the patent system, and also the unauthorized and uncompensated uh, collection for commercial ends of genetic resources and or traditional knowledge. So I found this really interesting because, I mean, when doing research and the way we've been talking about it, we're talking about racism on a cultural level, somewhat of an interpersonal level. But it's really strange thinking of tradition and cultural knowledge in terms of this legalistic jargon and language. It involves intellectual property rights, uh, copyright patents and the the legal system. Is this really the approach we need? We see a lot of really progressive scholars using this term that I've never heard before, but I think is is really valuable when talking about uh, these issues. But is this the way that we're going to sort of reconcile the racism and colonialization and imperialism of of capitalism and uh, or food traditions? Is viewing cultural knowledge in terms of property regressive? And what does compensation look like if that's really the way forward? And speaking of the term biopiracy, I find that really interesting because biopiracy sounds so, you're right, jargony. It's a bit scientific. It's like I would have no fucking clue what somebody would be saying if they were saying biopiracy. It's so like non-human, which is really weird because it's literally referring to like the stealing of tradition and culture and profit, like profiting off the stealing of tradition and culture. It is such a human thing, right? Like it is literally talking about the way that we share our culture and our knowledge with each other only to have like a capitalist swoop in and make money off it. I feel like that is so personal. That is such a like humanistic issue. It's a struggle about like the correct way to interact with each other. And it's called biopiracy. Like it just seems like an even more intellectual and jargony and extra way of saying like colonizing because it's just colonizing. It just reduces things down to terms of property and ownership and the the logic of capitalism. Yeah, it's interesting that like, I mean, that term itself is trying to discuss property and ownership, but it is property and ownership. It's a bit, yeah, just a random ironic thing. Anyway, continue, Mitch. <laughs> um, the issue at looking at, you know, traditions in terms of ownership, as in they belong to a specific country or to a group of people in a specific period of time, is that they reduce the relationship between, you know, what we're experiencing now and the past in a strict binary in terms of the binary between uh, and in the opposition of tradition and modernity. The fact that tradition is maybe uh, wise but antiquated and then modernity is progress and science-oriented, and those two things are unreconcilable. Uh, Graham Dutfield, in, in the same article, talks about how, quote, 
Chinese medicine, for example, was not traditional until it was named as such a few decades ago, largely for political reasons. Traditional Chinese medicine co-evolved with Western scientific medicine and has accommodated elements of modern science, for example, the germ theory of disease. What he's essentially getting at there is that the way knowledge is accumulated within cultures and communities or through generations isn't a closed system. It's an open system, and it works both ways between what we're experiencing now as so-called modernity and the still relevant traditions of the past. But the issue with framing it as a tension between tradition and modernity is that it's not really modernity that is parasitic. It's capitalism. It's imperialism. It's the conquering and stealing of knowledge to then personally reap the benefits from. Like I said, no knowledge, and that includes tradition, culture, etc., is developed independently. These ways of doing things are built within communities over long periods of time. But the issue with capitalism is that knowledge is constructed openly through community and intergenerationally, but this knowledge is only monetarily compensated selectively. Uh, so while even with your own culture, there is a, there's a tradition, if you start a business selling you know, this knowledge, only you will be making the money despite the fact that you are building upon the knowledge given to you by your ancestors, your community, etc., etc. And this kind of really relates, I think, to Western versus non-Western cultures as well with like individualistic and collectivist ideas. Because for me and like my culture being Pakistani, I mean, we're all very hospitable and it is about sharing. Like the joy of food is sharing. The like closest relationships you make with your family are over like sharing a meal. Like this is how we take care of each other when you're sick, somebody sends you food. Um, when you're like growing up and you start, you start to learn to cook, you do it with your mom or your grandma and you, they teach you. And it's all about sharing. Everybody is always sharing their home ready, home remedy or their new recipe or whatever. It's very collectivist and it's often done without any intention of reaping benefit. It's just sharing. The problem is we start to get individualistic. We start to get a bit capitalistic and it's like, here's all this information that I have only got because of thousands of people sharing it, building upon it, learning from it and growing it over like many, many years. Now I'm going to patent it and sell it and make money. That is a capitalist notion. And it's also like a capitalist notion that you can even do something truly independently because that's the whole idea. It's a meritocracy. You, you, you benefit from your creative ideas or the work you do, but really you can only do those work, that work or have that knowledge because of a large immeasurable network of other people and ideas and community and culture that you have no control over. So, I mean, that's what we're talking about when we want to get away from this method of compensation that is purely capitalistic and individualistic, uh, because really everything is collective. And so I imagine many people are asking, okay, well, like what, how can you share or make or like cook food without it being cultural appropriation? Actually, quite easily, <laughs> because I personally, I don't care who is cooking what most of the time. Obviously, like, I mean, I'm sure like Mitch, for example, the two of us, like Mitch makes heaps of Pakistani food that I've taught him how to make, that my mom taught me how to make. And I don't give a shit that he makes it. And I probably wouldn't care if he went and showed how his white friends, how, like how to make it or whatever. It doesn't matter. The difference would be if then if Mitch went then and like opened a restaurant and that said it was authentic Pakistani cuisine and then made it all with him and his white friends. And like, I was just left in the, in the dust. Then it would become culture appropriation. Then it would become problematic. There's a difference between just sharing and enjoying and then like actively profiting and degrading. Okay. Food is meant to be shared. I personally really believe that the joy in cooking comes from sharing and it's okay to just cook whatever you want. I don't care if you as a white person are doing your own little fusion versions of food at home. 
that's fine. That's not gentrification. That's just you cooking at home. The difference is the business model. The difference is the career. The difference is how much money you're making off the exploitation of another culture without actually expressing any kind of respect or acknowledgement or inclusivity of that culture. And also, I'm going to mention under capitalism, compensation is obviously impossible. Like you can't just compensate an entire culture for like the way capitalism and colonialism has destroyed it. There's nothing that can be done. And I don't expect monetary compensation from random people, but there are ways that you can uplift communities when you want to like, for example, work with their food. I was reading about a restaurant. Uh, there's some restaurant in America that I can't remember the name of. I'm very sorry, <laughs> but um, they basically like do a lot of kind of random ethnic dishes. So it's like unrelated ethnic dishes in their restaurant that they just like, and they're very popular. And then on their menu, it says at the bottom, after you visit us, please visit these restaurants. And then it lists a bunch of like ethnic restaurants that they really love and were inspired by that have, you know, inspired their dishes. And that is a way of sharing. It's like, yeah, we made these dishes, but we don't pretend to be experts on it. We didn't make this up. This is where we learned about this stuff from. Go visit them. Go eat their food too. It's a way of uplifting other cultures and I guess allowing the acknowledgement of where that came from. Like one of my friends who I was talking to the other day was telling me about a British cookbook that she knows of where it's like a British dessert cookbook and in the beginning it has an acknowledgement of how the only reason that the British could even make these fancy desserts that are now part of their history is because of the slave trade because that's how they got sugar. You know, it's just understanding like the history and the context of the food you're consuming and then being like sensitive to those cultures because I like nobody cares whether or not you're like making like I'm not even gonna say authentic traditional food but there is again you know a difference between authentic and traditional Mitch can make a bunch of traditional Pakistani foods but they'll never be authentic because he's not Pakistani you know what I mean like there is a difference um so I think it's worth kind of just talking about like if you're making food like ethnic food and you're like making it quote-unquote more fashionable easier to fit into Western taste. You're equating that with making it better, like you're making it more white and that is better, then that is problematic. But if you're just making a food the way you like it and you're like selling that as, you know, authentic, that's fine. <laughs> There's a food writer called Sajad Sukadwala who observed that cooking another person's food without understanding or respect and then profiting from it, that's problematic. But they mentioned that like a happy exchange would be like humility, enjoy it, don't insult people, don't hog the dishes, don't pretend they're yours, just share it and enjoy it and talk about it and discuss it and uplift one another and acknowledge it. And that's literally it, right? I feel like it's not that hard. But yeah, like we've got to know the roots. We've got to do the research. You've got to be aware of the context of the things that you're eating and just like not pretend that it exists in a vacuum or that you discovered shit because that's not true. Everything we have is from a very long, long list of collectivist kind of sharing. And that's important to remember. And it's great. And we should try and maintain that tradition instead yeah. of letting it all devolve into commodity and contextless Yeah, nothingness. sharing food is so beautiful and we really shouldn't let capitalism ruin something so amazing for us. Thank you for listening. This episode is sponsored by you, our listeners. Uh, specifically, we'd like to thank Everett, Beck, Naya, Rachel, Lucia, Sarah, Liz, Belle and Katie. Thank you so much. If you thought our discussion today was interesting, thought-provoking or something you learned from, please consider donating to our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Saliha. If signing up isn't your thing, you can also donate to our PayPal link at paypal.me forward slash Saliha to support future episodes. 
Both PayPal and Patreon links are in my Instagram bio, so check them out over there at Saliha Official and give me a follow if you liked today's episode. And don't forget to follow my Instagram at mitches.miscellanea for discussions around film, music and books. Also, if you have any comments or suggestions or you want to add to the discussion, you can DM me or email us at podcast at gmail.com and please include your name, pronouns and any other important info. And of course, remember to follow and subscribe. It really helps the podcast get out there. Sweet. Bye. Bye. Bye.